everyone it's your girl Adishola Cole and finally I am so pleased to announce my very first episode titled The Woman I've Become and I'm going to take you all on a journey so I need you all to you know brew your tea (laughs) sit tight listen to my story relate to my story and I really hope that it motivates every one of you in believing that anything is possible, in believing in yourself, sticking up for yourself, having high standards and not feeling guilty about it and just being you. So here it goes. So as you all know, my name is Adishola Cole. I am a mother, I am a wife, I am a CEO. Uh, Yes, lots of responsibilities. But I guess um, God has called me to do this. And um, because God has called me to do this, I'm going to excel. You know, I am going to do my best to be that mother, to be that CEO that I have been called to be. So I've always been somebody that's had high standards. I've always been someone that has been passionate about what I'm doing. And I've been someone that if I put my mind to something, it has to yield results. So. Who is Adishola Cole? What is her journey? How is she, uh, how did she get the name Mama Hawk? Why is she this strong, determined woman that she makes out to be or that you guys see me to be? So I'm going to share everything with you now and here it goes. Okay, so my mum and dad, they were childhood sweethearts who met in Lagos so they met in I believe secondary school and they migrated to the UK so I was born in Hackney in the 80s I'm not going to disclose what year uh, but I was born in the 80s and I was born in Clapton to be precise now at the age of two I was moved to a foster home so I lived with a family in Derbyshire now at the time uh, fostering was was really really strife because I think a lot of families were migrating and they wanted to hustle they wanted to make ends meet so you would put your kids in a foster home so that you can make all that money so that you can pay your bills and um yeah I guess that was it so I lived with uh, a white family in uh, Derbyshire from when I was two to when I was 11 years old now where i lived was a very very rural area so when i say rural i mean that it was like a village okay so think of lots of cattle lots of animals you'd have your milk delivered to your door and i was the only black person within that village which meant that when i went to school i was the only black person in that school and we're talking about the 80s so this was a time that racism was at its peak and every single day I was subjected to some sort of racism abuse so I would be called nigger literally every day chimpanzee monkey big nose big lips blackie you name it, I was called it. I didn't really have any friends, okay? So it was more or less me being a loner and struggling to survive in this predominantly white school. The teachers didn't really do anything. 
uh i don't know if they felt that it was out of their hands or maybe they were just racist themselves but every single day i found myself fighting to survive because of the color of my skin many a times um we'd go to the classroom and things would be stolen and they'd plant it in my drawer and surprise surprise the teacher would do a search and every single time these stolen objects were found in my drawer i remember one time i was so upset that i walked out of the school i stormed out of the school and the teacher ran after me there was also a time where i was moved to another class and i think that was because um i was a little bit more intelligent than the other students and the next day all of the kids parents came to school wanting to know why this nigger in quotes had been moved to another class and all of their kids were in a lower class so every single day i had to survive every single day i had to fight for myself every single day i had to remain strong to survive the racial abuse that i had to endure on a daily basis so that was school life in primary school i guess at that time i was probably about what 10 11 um like i said no friends so i was pretty much a loner i remember going out into the playground and um people would literally just build a circle around me and subject me to names and verbal abuse and so on i was really really good with athletics so i was a good runner um but that was all i could remember vividly if i was honest with you so that was you know my education uh now my foster home on the other hand was a completely different story as i said i live with foster parents who are a little bit older i'd probably say in their 60s and their 70s but it was a very very rigid upbringing and it took me many years to realize that the life that i was living was not normal So for me I felt that the way that I was being brought up was the normal way of being brought up. So every year I would go to my mum so only for Christmas, okay? Um as a result of that I did not have a relationship with my mum till perhaps my late teens uh or when I got into university. So every Christmas I would leave my my foster home and go to my mom but every single time i went to my mom i would scream i would shout i would yell that i wanted to go back to grandma and grandpa so my foster parents to me were my grandmother and my grandfather because i'd never met my mom or dad's um parents so i can imagine the pain that my mom endured having a daughter home for christmas and her daughter just not wanting to stay with her I remember there was a time that um mom I think she went out to get a newspaper or something I started to scream I started to shout I started to yell and bingo the police came uh I think a neighbor must have reported that there was a kid screaming in the house so the police kicked down the door and I remember and I think it was Stoke Newington police station so they took me to the station so you can imagine my mom getting home the door's been kicked down her daughter's nowhere to be found getting a call by the police to come get her daughter so my mom came to the station and i remember so vividly i was having a fry up eggs baked beans sausages you name it my mom with a face full of thunder coming to collect her daughter so that was the relationship i had with my mom 
it was a strange one we just didn't get on and I guess that was just me being me so back to my foster parents um so as I said it was a very weird upbringing so just to give you a few examples we were not allowed to sit down unless unless we were told to sit down so sometimes you'd be standing for seven eight nine hours a day standing and sometimes you'd be so tired that you would actually ask can I sit down please if you were lucky you get a yes if not you would get a no also I'm not allowed to wear clothes so I'd wear knickers uh, but if we had any guests or anything like that, then we'd be allowed to wear clothes. But other than that, you would wear pants, just pants on its own. Um, I was subjected to some sort of physical abuse. It was never sexual, but definitely physical abuse. I would have to sleep in a bathtub, especially if I wet the bed. So if I wet the bed, the next day I would sleep in the bathtub. So imagine you sleeping in a cold bathtub and it was really weird and I never understood why she'd do it. But sometimes she'd wake up in the morning, run a bucket full or run a tap full of cold water to wake me up. Now, the bathtub I could kind of tolerate. But what I hated was being locked in the shed, otherwise known as the garage. Uh, so sometimes if I didn't get the bathtub treatment, I would get the shed treatment. And what that would mean is being locked in a shed which is pitch black, as black as black can be. And um, you'd see rats scurrying around, you'd see any, like little cockroaches, and I wouldn't see anything. And I'd be locked in the shed for hours on end. And that's affected me till today. So if I'm alone in the house, I will not sleep with the lights off, never. So only if someone is with me, but other than that, I need to have lights on in the house. Um, yes, I was smacked, but I guess as Africans, that's normal. But the way that she did it was weird. So picture you had a chair and I'd have to kneel down in front of the chair, put my head on the chair and she would sit on my head, remove anything that I had on the lower part of my body. And she had a plastic whip that she would use to whip me. So till today, I remember one time she whipped me so hard um, that the whip broke and I've got a mark on my back till today. Um, why she did this? So there were two of them, but it was more of um, the, the woman doing more of this treatment. And why she did this, I do not know till today. But what was really weird, like I said, that was that even though I was subjected to this treatment, I always wanted to go back to them. Always. Every single time. Um... So, you know, I, I would have the whipping, I'd be locked in a shed, um, sleep in a bathtub. It was really weird. It was a very weird upbringing. Um, but it was one that I was so used to and so accustomed to, you know, not being able to go freely to the kitchen to eat, having to wait to be told when to eat, having to wait to be told when to sit down. So sometimes I remember nine, ten hours just standing, just standing and waiting for, um, you know, your foster mum to tell you when to um, sit down. I had a social worker. And I love the fact that, you know, my social worker would come and we'd go out. And I had an Afro at the time. So she'd take me to the salon and they'd use this, I remember, pink moisturiser. Give me a wash, give me a blow dry. And that was that. Now, 
Um, interestingly enough, um, when I was 11, I was shipped to Nigeria and I'm going to share the story of how this happens. Right, so when I was 11, I um, had a little plan with my foster mom uh, on how I would live with her. So remember I said that I didn't realise that the life that I was living was abnormal. Um, she'd buy me dolls. She'd buy me a lot of dolls. I was fascinated with dolls at the time. And like I said, I'd go to my mom and always want to come back to my foster parents. And um, we, we, we plotted that, um, you know, I wanted to live with my foster parents forever and ever. And as a result of that, we would make out that my mother uh, was maltreating me. My mother was not a good person. And uh, we made that statement. We made that accusation. And um, you can only imagine my mom. God, I, I don't know why I'm laughing now, but I think it's good to laugh now, right? So you can only imagine my mom getting a letter randomly to say that, you know, all these ac accusations had been made. And as a result, uh, she was being investigated and a social worker was being investigated. And um, I was to live with my foster parents uh, for the time being. So I guess mum got the letter and, you know, being the typical Nigerian woman that she was, she probably would have consulted, uh, you know, a lot of family, extended family, etc. I guess there probably would have been a lot of hoo-ha, a lot of noise around, you know, what Shola had done to her mum, etc, etc. So they cooked up a plan and I guess that plan was the best decision that they ever made. And I believe that decision made me become the woman as I am or that I've become now. So all I remember is this. So remember I said that we weren't allowed to wear clothes. So uh, we'd wear knickers. So my foster mom must have gone out to, um, you know, put some clothes out um, in the garden and she'd seen this car pull up and there was a black couple coming out. So automatically she knew that they were coming to our house because as I said there were no black people within the area so she came in and I just remember saying oh there's some niggas outside so she rushed us upstairs put, put on some clothes and lo and behold it was my mom my dad and a family friend who is now late god bless his soul so they came into the house and they said oh we just want to take Shola for two days her grandfather has come to London and we really want her to visit him and I remember my foster mom said oh okay do I need to pack any clothes and they said no 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 you don't need to pack anything you don't need to pack any toys she will be back and I remember they gave her transport money and I <laughs> I, that that was an awesome plan, by the way, mum and dad. But yeah, I remember they gave her transport money. And I guess, you know, the plan worked. So without further ado, I got into the cab. Then they went to get my younger brother and sister. They were in a separate foster home. And they took us to Heathrow. So I remember we got to Heathrow and uh they started to spoil us you know they took us to the shops i got pencil cases i got so many gifts you know they were pampering us and then mum said oh we're going to paris for a couple of days and i was excited my immediate younger brother was excited and um we got on the plane <laughs> so we got on the plane we were young so they told us we're going to paris we believe we were going to paris 
But what gave it away was when we got onto the plane and we sat down and the plane had taken off. And me being me, I started to look around and um, remember the little pillows or the little cushions that you have um, on your on your seats on the plane. I checked and one of them said Nigeria Airways. So I tapped my brother and I was like, Olu, Olu, Olu. And my mum just gave me this look to say, if you say anything, I'm going to beat your bum. I'm not going to swear. So I kept quiet. But I was confused. Are we going to Nigeria? Are we going to Paris? And of course we landed. And we landed and we got to, um, I think it's Muritala Mohammed Airport in Lagos. And I remember coming down. And at that time, I just remember seeing people chained. There were a lot of people chained. Maybe they were drug traffickers. I do not know. Uh, so we got to immigration. Okay. And something else happened. So I remember when I was living with my foster parents, my foster parents kept saying to me that um, they suspect that I, my mom, my my stepdad is not my real dad. So they suspect that my real dad, sorry, is not my stepdad. Uh, for me, I was young. I never understood. But they kept saying to me, your surname is different to um, your mom and your step and your dad and your younger ones. But anyway... Everything came to light when we got to immigration. So we got to immigration, Nigerian immigration. And as they do, they were checking the passports. And um, my younger ones are all ajayi. So they were stamping it. And then they got to me. And they said, why is her surname different? Do do you guys or do the kids have different fathers? And God bless my mum. There and then she was like, yes. So that was the first time that I realised that I had a real dad and my real dad was actually my stepdad so I remember I was like mom mom what are they talking about but mom bless her she's probably just thinking I just need to get this girl in Nigeria I need to get her to my folks job done so it was interesting getting into the car and I just remember everything was weird I remember everything was pitch black and there were candles, people, I guess all the market people lighting their candles. And the first place that we went to was my grandmother. Uh, I was raised by my grandmother, so I'll talk about that in a moment. And I just remember all these women just running towards us, you know, running with their wrappers, uh, cuddling and hugging us so tight and everything was weird. And then we got to my grandfather's house. So... My grandfather was an extreme polygamist, okay? So he had nine wives. Uh, my, my grandmother was the first wife and he had 27 uh, children. So my mom was the second child. So we went to stay with my grandfather. He was a well-respected chief, uh, I, I believe in the Agege area. So we lived with him. Um, now, what they did to pacify me was say that you're only going to stay in Nigeria for two weeks and after that you will go back because I was just you know a very strong-headed individual and I guess they had to manage the situation carefully so two weeks came and went and I kept asking the question when am I going back when am I going back and mom took me to the room and mom sat me down and mom said Shola you are not going back to London I yelled, I screamed, I shouted, 
I had. Now, I was a tantrum queen. I could kick a tantrum. But I knew that that day I had the biggest tantrum ever. Imagine you living your whole life in the UK and someone is taking you to Africa. And at that time, the way that Nigeria was depicted was really, really bad. Okay, you'd see, you know, dry land, dry sand, um, skinny, skeletal kids on the TV. So I was absolutely petrified. And I just remember screaming, who's my dad? Who's my dad? And I remember my mom crying. But that was the beginning of my journey um, in Nigeria. Now, my younger ones, they all went back with my mom and my dad, my, my stepdad. And um, I think when they left, they gave me something. They gave me some sort of potion. So I slept off. And all I know is I woke up and they'd all gone. So um, that was the beginning of my life in Nigeria. So I went to um, Ifaku International Secondary School. Um, it was quite a challenge because I remember in my primary school, I just probably learned the two times table. But in the Nigerian education, educational system, um, it's a lot more robust, if I'm honest with you. So they were already on the seven times, eight times table. I struggled. I remember that every single time the reports came through, I was bottom in class. I was last. So if there were 38 kids in that class, I was number 37 or number 38. I also struggled to acclimatize with the culture. Um, you know, I had a few people that would laugh at my accent because I didn't have like a, a London accent. I had a proper Derbyshire accent with a bit of Cockney so I can just imagine how the kids felt you know with this girl with a Cockney accent and so on so my grandmother I'd go home and this is where I live with my grandmother my grandmother was very very strict um <laughs> she's a strong woman she's still alive she raised me uh love my grandmother to bits um, but she was a very very strong woman you weren't allowed to go out. You know, if you went out, you need to explain why. So every time I um, got laughed at in, in school, I'd tell my grandmother and my grandmother would follow me to school the next day. Really, really funny. But eventually I got used to the way of doing things. I got used to the culture. I wasn't really a fan of the, um, the, the whips, you know, we all getting smacked or whipped with a cane. Um, but eventually I made friends. I made amazing friends, some of which I'm still friends with till today. And um, from me being bottom in class, I was first or I was either second or I was either third. Now, the rule was that I wasn't allowed to come back to the UK until they were absolutely sure that I changed. So um, I had my whole primary school where I wasn't allowed to travel back to the UK. My passport was kept with my grandfather. My grandfather passed away and then eventually my passport was released. Now, how did I meet my real dad? Remember I said it was when I got to the airport that I realized I had a real dad. My stepdad has been very, very good to me. I've known him from when I was two years old. So to me, he was and he still is my dad. So um, one day I was at home, uh, my grandmother's house in the shop. And this guy turned up tall, dark, handsome. I mean, I look like my dad. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, he came into the shop and he said, oh, hi, I want to see um, Auntie Bola. 
and here I was with my you know Britical accent and I was like oh okay I said uh, can I have your name please and he just said tell her it's Shola's dad it didn't even ring a bell so I went to my auntie and I said auntie auntie there's someone outside he said he wants to see you and he said that he's Shola's dad and I remember my my auntie jumping up tying her wrapper coming out standing still frozen and she looked at him and she said Akin brother Akin and she looked at me and she said Shola this is your dad I just remember that feeling of me and my dad. Um, we went into the house and the whole afternoon he held my hand. I just remember him holding my hand so tight. Um, and he bought me some clothes. One was like a dress. I remember that dress so clearly. So I felt super cool that I had met my dad. And um, dad would come to school dad would come to visit so I remember they'd say Shola your dad's outside and daddy would come to school and visit me I, I guess they kind of knew the situation and he really made an effort I guess to make up for all those years where he wasn't around but then something happened so I my mum and my dad had a mutual friend um, and I'd sometimes go there uh from time to time so i went there for the weekend and my dad must have come to see me and they told him my grandmother my auntie said well she's not around she's gone to see um this family friend in question and apparently dad wasn't happy so they called this family friend otherwise known as auntie bumi and they said okay you need to bring shola home her dad's here and her dad's not happy so me being me, Miss Tantrum, Miss Drama Queen, again, I started shouting, yelling, screaming, crying. They brought me home, Auntie, no. Uh, so the family friend brought me home and I remember that her and my dad were exchanging words. I don't know what the whole beef was about till today, but she left and I wasn't happy. So I'm screaming, I'm sh yelling, I'm shouting. And I remember my dad saying, Shola, stop crying. I'm your dad. And I said, no. I said, no, you're not my dad. My dad is in London. And I, I remember my dad crying and I just walked off. And um, my aunties, my grandma, I can imagine at the time they must have consoled him. They must have said, you know, she's a young child. You know how they are over there. Sadly, that was the last time I saw my dad. So my dad fell sick he had um I believe it was kidney problems and um I was a bit disappointed to say the least that nobody told me that my dad was sick because if I knew my dad was sick I 100% would have gone to see him and um I was made aware that even though he was sick you know he was moved from one hospital and one place to another and he kept requesting to see me but that request was never granted and one day they called me and they said your dad has passed away so I went for the burial and that's when I met my stepbrothers so my dad had two kids um, with my stepmom uh, one's disabled sadly he passed away last year and um, I just remember you know going for the burial seeing my dad and um, till today I feel that pain is still there and I want to encourage you know every one of you listening to this that if you're at loggerheads with any of your family members right now, make peace. 
I wasn't able to make peace. But I'm happy knowing that he is proud of Mama Hawk. He's proud of the daughter that he has. I know for a fact that he's smiling down at me from the skies, from heaven. And he's a proud daddy. So I'm, I'm going to continue to make him proud. And because of this, so he's actually called Abayadi Cole. And I was just, you know, just to have that bond with my dad, um, I decided that I would never change my surname. So Cole is not actually my, it's actually my maiden name. And I would like to keep it that way. So that's how I met my dad. I'm very grateful for at least meeting him before he sadly passed away. So um, I got over that hurdle and then I went to um, Lagos State University, the Great Lasso. And I always say one thing, if you can survive in Lasso, you can survive anywhere. Because we, um, I went to Lasso at a time where cultism was on the rise. I just remember dead bodies being carried all the time. Um, I lost a very good friend of mine, Peter's, um, tall guy who sadly lost his life due to cultism. I remember people being burnt um, outside the school gates. It was mad. It was crazy. Um, did I learn anything whilst I was in Lasso? I'm, I mean, I studied literature and English. I've always been someone that likes to read. I've always been someone that likes to write. Now, the thing with me is that I'm very good with academics. Okay, so my friends can testify. When I want to put my head down, I will put my head down and my grades would be smashing. But at the same time, I was a bit of a club girl. Yeah. So remember I said my grandmother was very, very strict. So the moment I had the opportunity uh, to have that freedom and independence, I never went back home. Sometimes grandma would come and check on me in the hostel to see if I'm okay but I just made that decision I had my freedom and that was that so in Lasso I uh, made a lot of good friends again who are still my friends till today and that was the time where I was finally allowed to come to the UK for holiday so I guess they thought you know what she's passed through um, primary school she's passed through secondary school uh, she's now in university. Surely, surely she must have common sense by now. So um, every time Lassa was on strike, which was pretty much all the time, I would come to the UK and I would work in hotels. So my mom uh, is a housekeeper. So she'd secure me roles in hotels and I clean rooms. I'm talking 15, 20 rooms. Sometimes they give me 10 rooms. I finish them and they say, Shola, you want more rooms? I say, yes, please. Because I was seeing the pounds. It was cash in hand. And I use all that money to buy my designers. I mean, not designers per se, but sketches, uh, River Island, all those little things. Then I go back to Lasso and represent. Yeah, that was that was the life. OK, so um, every time Lasso was on strike, I'd come to the UK clean rooms one time I worked in a Jewish bakery as well in Clapton but the majority of the time I was a housekeeper and there was one hotel that I remember the Savoy the Savoy Hotel so the Savoy Hotel is pretty much five star if not six star but I cleaned the rooms and every time the housekeeper would call me back 
to redo the room. Maybe there was a bit of dust, uh, the duvets were not done properly, you name it. Now, the way that the duvets were, I can never explain it, but I'd had bruises on my knuckles and my knuckles would bleed because you had to do the duvet a certain way. And I remember that time I said to myself, this Savoy Hotel, I'm coming back as a guest and won't God do it? God is doing it. So I, um, yes, so back and forth from the UK to Lagos to Lagos to the UK. And um, at the same time, I'd hang around the club people. So the, you know, the Sigma Fives, the A pluses, these are all the clubs that were, um, you know, popular at the time. But I graduated. Um, I graduated with a 2-2, I believe it was, literally in English. Um, my dissertation was one of the best uh, because I didn't copy and paste. OK, so I literally put my head down and um, I wrote a really, really good dissertation um, that the English department was so very, very proud of. I did not serve. So think of it this way. I presented my dissertation, say, on a Thursday. On Saturday, I was back in the UK. I did not look back. At that time, I believe I was so desperate, so desperate to come back to my home, come back to my homeland or my country, that they tried to get me to serve and I refused. So I came back to the UK I uh, worked in the bakery. I think I still worked in the hotels occasionally. Then I got a job in the bookies, William Hill, the gambling companies. Um, I wouldn't even, <laughs> I would not even advise my enemies to work there. Um, but I worked in the bookies dealing with, you know, drug dealers, people that have been relate, released from jail, your gamblers, you name it. But again, I was very headstrong. Okay, anyone come to me, I will tell you where to go. Uh, and then from there, I found myself in the bank. So I guess this is where my real, this is the pinnacle of my, my career. Uh, finding myself at the bank, a lot more professional, obviously working as a cashier, uh, a lot of um, politics. And we'll talk about that in another episode, you know, dealing with office politics and, you know, how I then made that decision to break out. But in summary, um, I am so happy with the decision that my mum made and my family made. Um, God knows where I would be now. And for every one of you that is listening to this, um, you know, every one of you has a journey. It might not make sense. I'm sure my journey did not make sense to me. My journey probably did not even make sense to my family. But I can say that from being the rebel child, I am now the golden child. Hey, <laughs> uh, I know my mom is so proud of the woman that I have become, you know, leading by example. I have younger ones. I have, you know, two younger brothers and a younger sister who, um, you know, had to witness that person that I was before those changes were made. And my mom said that it was so bad that even my younger ones, um, they didn't want to be around me because I was that much of um, a rebellious child, you know. Uh, so I'm happy that Nigeria definitely calmed me down. Nigeria definitely softened me. Um, it was the culture change that I needed. It was the best decision. And um, I guess this is the woman that I am now, um, helping hundreds of people with their careers, you know, mentoring, motivating, advising, instilling, 
And hey, there's a light at the end of the tunnel for every single one of you. And I'm just so happy to get this story out there. Um, it's no excuse, but I think that is why I am that strong person that I am. I guess that is why I am that strong individual that I am. I've had to work hard. I've had to prove myself. I've had to endure. And I think this is why I am the woman I have become. Thank you so much.